Preston Crest. Oh, we can do much better than that. It's a gorgeous day. This is a day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Let's try that one more time. Good morning, Preston Crest. Here we go. Glad to see everybody here uh, joining us here at the 1045 worship service. My name is Mike Pipkin. I am one of the elders here at Preston Crest. And we're just glad that you're here. If you could, at this moment, take out your, your mobile devices and text the word check-in to the number that you see up on the, uh, the screen right now. That'll give us a, a note of your attendance. You can also text the word ME, M-E, to the same number. That will get you access to lots of other features of our mobile, uh, mobile platform and our church website. So we're glad you're here. Uh, we just we may have some visitors or, or new members of Preston Crest that have joined us from the PC 101 that just took place across the hall. If you did join us from that, we're glad that you're here and we're glad that you're looking to be a part of Preston Crest. Um, just a, a couple of, of, of quick announcements before we return to worship. First of all, and uh, Phil Jackson, who will be up here after service, will remind you we, we will be gathering right here at 6 o'clock tonight. Uh, to hear Jacob, uh, Jacob Hawk bring another fine lesson in the series on encounters with Jesus. So we'll spend some time singing this morning uh, or this evening, and we'll, we'll spend some time in the Word. We encourage you to be back here. Yes, I know there's a cowboy game that starts at 325. That's what DVRs are for. Let's see you here tonight to hear Jacob at 6 o'clock. 
Something else that's very important that we want to bring to your attention is the special contribution day that we're going to have next week, Sunday, September 26th, uh, here at Preston Crest for the Village of Hope and in, uh, specifically the, the renovation of the Preston Crest House at the Village of Hope Orphanage in Ghana. We, we helped fund the construction of this house back in 2007, but this house has been well used over the last 14 years. And you can see not only from the pictures on the slide, but also the pictures in the brochure that you can get out on the table uh, that there are significant, a significant amount of renovations that need to be done to the Preston Crest House, which, which it, when, when we started there, it was 30 orphans. Uh, we have, right now, the entire orphanage is over 200. It is a fantastic ministry of the Churches of Christ in Ghana. Uh, so we want to renovate this, uh, this house so that it can continue to serve the purpose of, of helping the orphans uh, in that community. And those, the, the, the more you learn about Village of Hope, the more you're going to appreciate what a great work it is of the Preston Crest Church of Christ and of, of God's kingdom. Because these orphans not only are cared for, but they grow in their faith and they go on to great things in Ghana. We, we have government officials in Ghana who, have, who started as orphans at the Village of Hope and have gone through and, and continued to serve God and serve their community. So we need $33,000. That is our goal for next week. Uh, be prepared, bring a check, uh, and we'll have a box available for you. We can also use the online platform to be able uh, to make that contribution. But let's hit that goal. $33,000 to renovate the Preston Crest House in Ghana. So be prepared to do that. Let's go to God in prayer, and then we will uh, open our worship in, in Scripture and turn it over to John Scott. Let's join me in prayer, if you would. Lord, we are thankful for this day, this day that we can come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, not only in this room, but also virtually to, to celebrate the fellowship that we have with, with one another, but also, more importantly, to worship you, our great God, that loved us so much that he put together a perfect plan for our salvation, sent your son, Jesus, to live among us, to show us the way, to teach us, to die for us, but then to rise again, to give us all hope and, not, and, and confirmation and knowledge that we can be with you forever if we just take on the name of Jesus. We repent and we're baptized and we confess and we live lives that show that the spirit that came within us in baptism is shining for the world to see that we are children of yours and we are so thankful for that. Bless our worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord and this is from Psalm chapter 100, verses 1 through 3. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Let's continue our worship in song. All right, church, let's stand and let's sing this morning. Oh, worship the King of glory.
going to sing one more song as we are entering into this time of communion and then Jacob Hawk is going to come and lead us this morning around the bread and around the cup.
I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the name Fanny J. Crosby. Fanny J. Crosby wrote more hymns, more songs than any song composer, songwriter in the history of the Christian tradition. In fact, most of the hymns that are in our old hymnals and songs that are in our old songbooks were penned by Fanny J. Crosby. Right now in the Young Adults Ministry, we are looking at the stories of several of the old hymns that we've sung for years, and many of them which we don't sing as much anymore. I learned this past week in researching for this class that most of our songbook publishers probably created an alias for Fanny J. Crosby just so they would never be accused of taking too many songs from just one writer. So if you remember the old blue hymnals that were in the back of the pews, which aren't there anymore, you'll read all kinds of names of songwriters. They may or may not be real people. They actually may be Fanny J. Crosby. She wrote over 8,000 hymns. What you may not know about Fanny J. Crosby was that she was blind from the age of six weeks old. She was born in 1820, and when she was six weeks old, her parents noticed that she could not reach out and grab most objects like six-week-old children do, so they called for the local doctor in town, and he was out of town caring for another patient, so they called on another man who claimed to be a doctor in the town. He probably wasn't. He came to the Crosby home. He placed hot poultice on Fanny J. Crosby's eyes to draw out the infection. The infection did disappear, but unfortunately white scars formed on Fanny's eyes, and she would never see again. She could not see colors, people, the changing of seasons. It's a tragic story, but here's why I mention that detail. Most of the songs that Fanny J. Crosby penned speak of things that we see as God's people. Some of her well-known hymns are To God Be the Glory, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, Blessed Assurance. She would talk about these beautiful scenes of sight, but she never saw any of them. And toward the end of her life, she passed away in 1915, she recorded these words. Through my physical blindness, God has blessed me with soul vision. I love that terminology. God has blessed me with soul vision. It was the best thing that could have happened to me. How could I have lived such a helpful life had I not been blind? Do not blame the doctor. By now, I'm sure he's dead. But if I could meet him, I would tell him that he unwittingly did me the greatest favor in the world. From a young age, Fanny J. Crosby made the decision that true joy is not a physical action. True joy is a spiritual conviction. And like Crosby this morning, we did not see with our own eyes the cross. We did not see the empty tomb on that great resurrection morning. We did not see Jesus perform miracles and feed thousands of people. But we choose to see through joy. And we choose to see through faith. And we remember this morning that our faith in the Lord is not a physical action. It is a spiritual conviction. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful this morning of the promise of your word that faith 
does not come, Father, by sight. But, Father, our faith is what gets us to the next day. Father, though we were not there at Golgotha, and though we did not run out to the empty tomb that resurrection morning with Mary and Peter and John, Father, we feel like we can still be there. We have soul vision. And, Father, we take comfort this morning in knowing that you are real and that your desire for us is true. And, Father, we give you thanks for the body of Jesus prepared for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And Father, now we thank you for the blood of Jesus, for the way it cleanses us and purifies us from every imperfection in our lives. Father, we know that there is power in your blood. We know that there is hope in your blood. And Father, though centuries and millennia distance us from that special moment on the hill outside of Jerusalem, Father, we were there in spirit, we're there in vision, and Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for his blood shed for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Welcome to Preston Crest. I want to thank you for your generosity. Uh, this church has such a big heart, and just the giving has been fantastic, and just a response to God's giving to us and His goodness. Um, so thank you for that. If you want to give this morning, there's three really easy ways to do it. One is just drop check or money in the box out in the foyer contribution box, big white box. Uh, you can also click the green box on the website give that way electronically or use church teams. If you're a member, you know what church teams is. Uh, but I just want to pray right now over one of the many good works, over one of the many projects of this church that has, has shared the gospel over, over 20 years at this point. So let's just pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for calling us to a different life. I thank you for making that possible through the gift of the gospel and your sacrifice. You tell us that the fields are ripe unto harvest and that we need to pray for workers. I thank you, God, for all of those who have volunteered over the years to sit down and make a new friend and share the gospel through the Friend Speak ministry. Thank you for the thousand-plus Chinese and Taiwanese folks who've come and gotten to practice their English and hear the story of Jesus. God, I pray for this ministry that it will continue to flourish and expand the boundaries of your kingdom. I thank you that you give us opportunity after opportunity to tell the story of Jesus to those around us. 
And I thank you for the impact that it's made on our lives. We pray this now in your name. Amen. Hi, I'm Roxy. I'm the president of Taiwanese Student Association at UTD in fall 2021. And this is my vice president, Vicky. Hi, I'm Vicky. The program helped me and other UTD students to become accumulated to dollars to Texas while we improve our conversational English. The program has been helping students for 22 years using Bible as our text and let us develop relationships with people at Princeton Chris. Over 1,000 students have benefited from the program. For the first time, a number of summer school students are participating in French Speak. And we are anticipating an additional 80 students to be part of the program in the fall. This is where you come in. We need to have Princeton Christ members to work with the student. These students have the communication skills in English and were selected by their country to attend UTD. We met at 4.30 on Sunday afternoon and gives you time to attend the 6 o'clock service. Thank you. We look forward to your being a part of the program. Robert Rigdon, thank you. I said it again at first, or I said it at first service. Thank you again for producing such excellent videos, and and particularly this week. Thank you for subtitles that helped a bunch. And I want to also call out David Cobb, who helps us with our live stream. David Cobb up in the booth, and then Glenn Connor also helping us with our sound. I, hey, can we just applaud these guys? Every Sunday morning, they're here early. And they just help things run smoothly. Sometimes it's not always smooth, but we're doing the best we can, church. Hey, let's stand. We're going to send kids on up to Children's Church this morning. Children's Church is extended up through sixth grade. If you would like to take your third through sixth grader upstairs as well, you can do that this morning for Children's Church. We're going to sing one more as Gordon's getting ready to come back up. On Zion's glorious summit stood a numerous host redeemed by blood they hid their King in strength divine. I heard the song and stroll to joy. I heard the song and stroll to
we sing, did we sing that at first service? We did? Not like that, though. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Oh, God is good. Hey, right off the top, good morning, everybody. And right off the top, tell you, so we sent a thing out to parents this week about uh, the sermon subject. It's going to be about sex this morning uh, before we start a new series. I did want to tell you, nothing to worry about, nothing too racy. Just wanted parents to be ready uh, for conversations that might come out of this. We just want to be fully prepared as we teach the next generation. Um, the other thing, next week, I'm going to start a new sermon series on Sabbath. Um, you know, right at the beginning, day seven, uh, that principle of Sabbath, of rest, of recalibration around God is introduced. It is part of the rhythm uh, that we were designed to live in, and when we don't, we experience a lot of issues and stresses, so we're going to talk about Sabbath for a few weeks. So this morning, I'll just open up with the question, what, what does the Bible say about sex? And the interesting thing is, you know, people think they know what the Bible says about sex, so why would we be talking about this? And I think there are a lot of good reasons to talk about it. One of them is what people think the Bible says about sex is not always what it says. And in fact, there are some assumptions made in the culture and sometimes even in churches that the Bible, the scriptures are kind of like straight-laced, kind of boring, when it comes to our sexuality, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, like, it's God's idea, folks. He invented sex. He gave it to us. He came up with this. Um, he is the one that made them male and female, put them together in a paradise, naked, and said, become one flesh. In other words, my paraphrase, have at it. Enjoy each other. Be fruitful and multiply. So this is God's idea. And God is the one who placed a book, Song of Songs, in the middle of the Bible that is all about the pleasurable aspects of this gift. It's a book about arousal and perfume and alluring attire and, and passion God's the one that did that. And so if you think the Bible is boring or straight-laced when it comes to sex, I would encourage you to read more Bible. Read your Bible. And so we also, I think, need to revisit the Bible and sexuality because so many have assumptions about it that are changing and moving out of alignment with Scripture. And we'll talk more about that this morning. Um, why talk more about sex? Because our culture is more confused than ever, is more divided than ever, like until a few decades back, uh, maybe four or five decades back, there were some general assumptions that people had, whether they went to church or not, about what was right and wrong when it came to sexuality, and, and a lot of those assumptions are being cast aside. There are so many categories now to describe different orientations, and that's just growing all the time. You know, LBGTQ, 2IA+, I, they're just adding things constantly, and I'm not saying that to Sold. It's just that's happening right now. You're living in a culture where things are constantly being redefined and changing and new orientations are popping up. Uh, some of it's been good recently. Um, I think the Me Too movement, you can kind of argue both sides of it, but in general, I think it's been a good thing to say, you know, these things that were getting swept under the rug, uh, these abusive, wrong behaviors uh, that were kind of deemed to be okay in certain places, those are not okay. Those need to be changed. That's wrong. And so that's been a good thing that we've called attention to that. But while there are so many differences and nuanced opinions when it comes to this stuff, it is helpful to keep going back over and over to what the Scripture actually says. And here at Preston Crest, our leadership, our elders, our ministers, our, our people here, we are determined to live under the authority of Scripture. We want to follow what God says to the best of our ability and lean on the Holy Spirit to help us do that. And no matter what the culture says, we plan to line up with Scripture. Now, let me be clear. When you're lined up with Scripture and culture diverges from Scripture, it means you're going to be seen as out of touch. It means you may be labeled as controversial. And we've just got to be okay with that. 
We've got to be okay with that because culture may change. But our commitment to God's word does not change. So as disciples, we will follow the Lord Jesus and we will follow his word as best we can regardless of what culture does, okay? Uh, finally, before we get into the text this morning, I just want to say, since we are Jesus followers, we love sinners. We recognize that everyone has been damaged by sin. Everyone has made sinful choices. And we are called to help people hear the good news and to have an opportunity to draw closer to Jesus, who is, by the way, pursuing sinners. He came to seek and save those who are lost. And so part of that is just humbly acknowledging my own story, our story, that we are also sinners saved by the grace and only by the grace of God. So we're grateful for that. And in a time of confusion, sexual confusion, not just outside the church, it is good for us to make sure that we get oriented around some biblical landmarks. Like I remember when I was, I had to be 13, 14 years old, me and my dad, we went to Colorado and we were going to climb this mountain. It was a 21 mile round trip kind of expedition. We had another father and son that were with us and you wanted to make the summit before the thunderstorms hit in late morning, early afternoon. And so we started our hike at 3.30 in the morning. You may not be aware of this. It's dark at 3.30 in the morning unless you're like in Alaska or Finland at a certain time of year. I mean, here, it's dark in Colorado at 3.30 in the morning all year round, and it was dark. And so it was difficult to see the landmarks. It was, we missed some trail signs, and turns out for the first hour of the hike, we were walking the wrong way. Oh, how frustrating. When you realize you're already tired and you've got to turn around and get back to the beginning of the hike. We did not make it to the summit that day. We tried. We didn't quite make it. And so what we want to do when we come into Scripture and we look at our journey toward God and our journey to walk in deeper fellowship with Him and ultimately live with Him for eternity, we want to look for some big landmarks that God has placed in Scripture and maybe some smaller like trail signs to help us when we get a little bit lost, when we get a little bit confused, when maybe we've wandered in the wrong direction. And so that is what we're going to be doing. The, the big landmark that God puts right there in the beginning of the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 when God the inventor of sex has this to say he says therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh yes that is talking about sex folks they shall become one flesh and that is the landmark God makes them male and female email. He gifts them with sex. He puts them together and he, he invites them to enjoy that gift within the sacred confines of the covenant of marriage. And it is an amazing gift. It helps a husband and wife grow closer emotionally, connect physically and even grow deeper together on a spiritual level. And all of that starts right there in the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Part of the biblical narrative, a big part, and we won't read all of these scriptures. We'd spend all morning reading these scriptures. But a part of the narrative is God intends it to be pleasurable as well. And so a lot of the scripture devoted to our sexuality talks about that. Like, here you go, Proverbs chapter 5, 18 to 19. I could have chosen other passages that were even a little more edgy, but I thought this is probably about as far as we can go on a Sunday morning at Preston Crest. Uh, Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And the husband said, Amen. Thus saith the Lord, you know? I mean, and the landmark again, you go back to Genesis. This is God's stuff. He intended it for, be, for it to be between, 
speaking Portuguese now, entre um homem e uma mulher, between a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage, the two shall become one. Jesus quotes that passage in Matthew chapter 19. Paul quotes that passage from Genesis 2 in Ephesians chapter 5 and again in 1 Corinthians 6, 16. The two shall become one. The husband and wife shall enjoy a sexual relationship. So, Big idea, big landmark here from the beginning. Sex is a gift from God for a husband and wife, a man and woman, to enjoy within a marriage covenant. And once you see that landmark, once you see that mountain, you are able to look for the trail signs along the way. You're going to encounter many of those in Scripture. Dozens of passages about adultery. And how it's wrong, how it's sinful. You're going to encounter passages about premarital sex, how that's wrong, how that's not God's idea. You're going to find passages about sex between two men or two women. Uh, you're going to find some that at least indirectly have to do with pornography as well. But I would go back to this idea that we started with this morning. The Bible is very pro-sex. I mean, it is very pro-sex from the beginning when it is a man and a woman in the bonds of holy matrimony. But it is a powerful, powerful thing. And when sex is experienced, when it's practiced, when it's pursued outside of those bonds of covenant marriage, it becomes dangerous. It damages people. Ask any therapist you know uh, about the people who've been victimized by various forms of sexual sin. Proverbs 6.27 compares our sexuality to a fire. It's a good one. A fire in the middle of winter is a great thing at your house when it is in the fireplace. It will comfort you. It will warm the house. You can even cook on the thing. But if a fire is in your attic, it's not good. <laughs> if the fire breaks out in your garage, not good. In your closet, not good. Within a marriage, it is good, it is right, and it is for us to enjoy. So in Scripture, my paraphrase here of 1 Corinthians 7, in Scripture, God says, uh, in, in a marriage relationship, have at it. Enjoy. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 7. Husband, a husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. A husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. A wife, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife, do not, this is the word of God, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for, for a limited time so that you can devote yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together. You should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That is about as pro-sex as you can get right there in the Bible. Keep it in the fireplace. Keep those flames burning within the marriage covenant, never outside of it. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for, this is not Gordon, this is the Word of God, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Strong words. In fact, as you work through the Old Testament and the New Testament and you look at these trail signs, you will see very strong, clear language used in the Bible to talk about the parameters for sex and what happens when people stray away from those. Dozens of passages in the Bible condemning adultery, many more that speak about fornication or sex before marriage or outside of marriage in any way and other passages that speak very clearly about a sex relationship between men or between women. Uh, that is in the Bible. Um, we've got 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says you need to run away from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin. Think about that. That's quite a statement. Every other sin 
sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You, you talk about countercultural, you talk about diverging from what culture is telling you. Paul says, you are not your own disciples of Christ. You were bought with a price. So glorify God within your body. So sin is sin. But Paul makes it clear, we've got a different category here in terms of the impact and the nature of sexual sin, he says it is a serious matter indeed because it is the one sin that you actually commit in some sense against yourself and against your body and against the Holy Spirit of God who your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit of God. Like there are three things he talks about here in verses 19, 18, 19, and 20. The first in verse 18 is that, yes, sexual sin is an attack against your body, your God-given body. It's an attack against the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is your body, and it is an attack on the glory of God. It robs him of glory. And you may be thinking, how on earth does my choice about my sexuality rob God of glory? Well, it's pretty simple. He came up with it. It is his gift. And when we tell God, I know better than you. I know what you say in scripture, but I'm going to go my own way. I elevate myself. I demote God and I take the glory that is due God. So it is incredibly serious according to the apostle of Paul. We don't want to, as disciples, elevate ourselves and diminish God. We, do, we live for his glory, not to take glory away from him. Now, there are a lot of things... This is another sermon series probably at some point that we could talk about in terms of based on scripture rekindling the passion in our marriage relationships what we can do husbands and wives to get those fires going in fact we're going to have a marriage retreat here at the beginning of next year at some point with the hatches, hatchers and we're going to we're going to have a romantic weekend for our couples at this church at a really nice hotel and we'll talk more about that later so that, you know we can talk about those things uh, down the road a little bit more, but what right now I just want to share a couple of more details here that are so interesting and I think important. The one who's written these passages from 1 Corinthians, Paul lived as a single adult, right? Think about that. He lived as a single adult. Jesus, of course, lived as a single man. And if you want to just fill in the trio there, the other perhaps most influential leader in that time, spiritually speaking, John the Baptist, also lived as a single adult. And let me say something. They were not lacking anything. They were not incomplete. They were not, you know, they were not missing anything in their devotion to God by living as single adults. In fact, Paul, uh, more than once with his pen, will advocate for the beauty of singleness. In 1 Corinthians 7, 7, he does that in other places as well. And in a culture that frankly worships sexuality, that idolizes sex, I think it's important to go back and say, you know what? You can be a full and complete and free and amazing servant of Jesus and live as a single adult Paul says so in the Bible. It was so then, it is the same thing today. So be clear, nothing wrong with you if you are living as a single adult. You're not lacking anything there. The church needs to affirm that biblical truth. Um, by the way, Paul never condemns people for getting married. I mean, not that at all, but he just affirms people who choose the path that he chose and that Jesus followed and that John the Baptist followed as far as being singles. He says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8, It is good for the unmarried, it is good to remain single as I am. It's a good thing, Paul says. Now, contributing to the confusion of our current 
cultural moments. We have thought leaders within Christianity who are reworking a lot of very old biblical ideas about sexuality, are redefining terms, and are in fact asking the question, which wasn't really asked until the past few decades, does the Bible really condemn homosexual activity? So there's a, let's say there's a sincere desire to rethink the Christian position on this, to reinterpret some of the scriptures and the Bible. Uh, why? Because, you know, there's so many now that identify themselves somewhere on that gay, queer spectrum. There are so many people who find themselves on that spectrum. There's a desire sincerely to make them feel loved and respected and valued. So there's kind of a, an effort to go back to Scripture and say, well, maybe it doesn't say that after all, or maybe that word could be translated in a different way. So does it, does the Bible really condemn sex between two people of the same gender? Yeah, yeah, it does. Does it pretty clearly in the Old Testament? Does it pretty clearly in the New Testament? Uh, if you want a list of scriptures or what, I'd be happy to send those to you. I would tell you just as a primer, start with uh, the book of Romans chapter 1, where uh, verses 24 to 27. Just start there and we can work out from there. But it's pretty, pretty clear. By the way, let me just say this before we get into uh, another passage, but uh, I know plenty of gay men and gay women. I have gay men who are my friends and gay women who are my friends who've chosen to live chaste lifestyles, who've chosen as, as their calling to be living sacrifices for Jesus, to be pure, sexually speaking, and I honor and I celebrate their devotion. They are amazing people of faith. So we are all tempted we are all tempted in different ways. After Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, every one of us since has struggled. Jesus, in all of his encounters with human beings, including his disciples, he never met a person who hadn't made poor choices at some point, who hadn't sinned against God at some point. So we are all inclined towards sinfulness and to walk through the Bible and to reinterpret texts uh, to where they no longer seem to be condemning uh, sex between men or sex between women, whatever the motives, it definitely leads to a misrepresentation of what the Bible actually says. And worse, I think it could provide false comfort to sinners like us who need to be called to repentance, who need to be called to a more perfect way of living who need to be called to honor God with their bodies. So there's a progressive New Testament scholar. His name is Luke Timothy Johnson. Um, he believes that same-sex unions are, are good and sanctified in God's eyes. And I, res I don't agree with that. I respect some of his analysis on the subject, especially with respect to reinterpreting Bible texts, because he writes to his own community of people who are working to say it's good, it's right, God approves it, and listen to what he has to say. Disagree with his conclusion, but I agree with his, the first half of this. He says, I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation, so the interpretation of Scripture, the reading of Scripture, it's straightforward. We know what the text says. It is important. This is where we're going to begin to diverge. He says, it is important to state clearly that we, his group, we do in fact reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to, listen to this, to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? He says, we appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way God has created us. So I respect him for being honest about the Bible does condemn it. Scripture, as he says, is straightforward. 
where I don't agree with him is he goes to a different authority. He says a higher authority would be my own experiences, our collective experiences. I do not agree with that, but he is right that the Bible is crystal clear on its teaching about the sin of same-sex sex. Now, so what is the call? This is where the rubber meets the road for us today. What are we to do with this individually as disciples of Jesus? What are we to do with this as a church here in Dallas, Texas? Well, we're going to teach unapologetically that sex is sanctified by God within and only within the, bar- the, the boundaries of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, period. That's what we're going to teach. If you're married, we're going to tell you, enjoy that gift. Enjoy that gift regularly with your spouse. If you are single, we're going to challenge you to live in purity, offering your body as a living sacrifice to Jesus. And for all of those who follow Jesus at Preston Crest, we are going to follow the calling to love and respect our neighbors who disagree with us. Uh, why would we expect someone who doesn't read the Bible Why would we expect our neighbor that doesn't go to church, that doesn't profess Jesus as their Lord, why, why would we expect them to think like we do? Or have the same attitudes we do? Or behave like we do on our sexuality? It's just not reasonable to think they would. Um, And we humbly recognize that every body that we come in contact with, that they have been touched by sin, that they, have, that they have chosen to rebel against God as, as we had at certain times uh, before we came to Christ. And we still struggle with sin as believers. Um, I think about Jesus and just some of the regular people he encountered, right? I think about the woman at the well, John chapter 4. Here's this Samaritan woman who, I mean, we don't know a lot about her life story. We do know that she had a series of sordid sexual encounters, a lot of extracurricular activity going on, a lot of horrible choices, sexually immoral choices, Jesus encounters her, and I would ask you, in her encounter with Jesus, did she feel shame? Did she feel condemnation? Did she feel like God was writing her off? Or did she feel honored and respected and loved by God? What about the woman four chapters later? The woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8. She is like dragged before Jesus. And they're ready to stone her to death. What did Jesus do with her? Did she feel condemned and shamed? Did Jesus turn her over to the mob? Or did Jesus shield her from the mob? And restore her and make her whole and challenge her to do things differently. Go and sin no more. Just like he tells us. Part of being made whole is experiencing the grace and love of the Father through the gospel. Part of being made whole is the call to repent and to line our lives up with the word of the Lord. One of the amazing things about Jesus Christ has always been his ability to see beyond the sin-scarred surface of our lives. You know, um, With neglected people in neglected places, uh, others saw problems. Jesus saw potential, right? When he looked at you, maybe there was other people seeing problems, but Jesus saw potential. And we, we are followers of Jesus. We don't just memorize his teachings. We practice the way of Christ, loving people, sharing good news with people, And when we get opportunities, challenging them to walk as disciples of Jesus. And maybe this morning, that calling is to put on Christ in baptism, to surrender your life to Jesus who bought you at a price and who set you free from sin and shame and judgment and put you on a path toward fellowship with God, restores what was lost in the garden and brings you and God back together in a beautiful fellowship. You can put Christ on this morning. Uh, Maybe you need the prayers of this church. And we would love to pray over you, pray with you. Let's respond to our good and loving God as we stand together and worship. This is my desire.
Church, we have glorified God this morning through your participation in, in song and in prayer and scripture, hearing God's message through participation in the Lord's Supper. God has been glorified. I'd like to say a prayer real quick. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this fellowship of believers. We thank you for the blessings. Lord, help us. Help us to live a life that seeks to please you, Lord, not to please man, not to please the culture, but to please you. This is sometimes tough for us, Lord, and we need your power, your love, and your spirit. May we hold on to those, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please read this take-home scripture with me from Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Go in the peace of love and God.